Hey, everybody. Hello. Welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. This here's Tony Jones, the Reverend Hunter, joined as always by the Kamala to my Joe, Brandon. <laughs> That's a controversial one. I don't know how I feel about that one. <laughs> I know we try to avoid politics here on the Reverend Hunter podcast, but I mean... I guess VP, I guess that, that's fine. I, I'll accept the position. VP is a pretty good sidekick job. And so if if anybody asks you, Brandon, do you want to be the host of the Reverend Hunter podcast? You're going to say, you know what? I'm just happy. I don't know. What, what does Kamala say when people ask her if she's going to run for president? I'm I, just happy in my job. I'm not looking for anything else, you know. <laughs> Well, I see the similarities, too. I haven't heard much from her in a while, and nobody <laughs> hears much from me. So I guess we got a lot of... That's true. <laughs> That's true. That's true. There has She hasn't gotten a lot of high-profile stuff till her recent trip to France. Yeah. So Brandon, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing well, man. How are you? How was your weekend? It, it, it oh. appears you had a good one. Dude, It's I'm, I'm sure it's getting boring for listeners that I just come on these intros and be like, let me tell you about the epic weekend I had in South Dakota. (laughs) But man, we had an epic weekend. Here's the funny thing, Brandon. Here's South Dakota for you. We knew that there was nasty weather coming in on Friday. And so we changed plans. Usually we leave at 5 in the morning so we can get there at 10 a.m. and start hunting. We decided to wait so we'd be driving in the daylight because of how bad the weather was going to be. Well, about the first half of the drive was real nice, and then we ran smack into a blizzard, man. I mean, it probably wasn't officially a blizzard because it wasn't snowing that hard, but it was like 25 degrees with winds between 40 and 60 miles an hour coming straight from the north. I, the roads were iced over and frozen. It was wicked. That, And then we got there uh, to a farm outside of Yale, South Dakota, and hunted there the first day, and it was brutal, brutal, miserable conditions. Yesterday, it was 62 and sunny. Wow. What where we were hunting. Jeez. <laughs> That's huge. It was crazy. It went from, like, winter to summer in the course of three days. Um, we brought home a lot of pheasants, man. We shot... Uh, two of the days we shot five-man limits. Yesterday we had to stop hunting because we shot a limit for five guys, and that was fine because we had to drive all the way home, which is another five hours back, you know. Uh, Yeah, it was just a – it was an epic weekend, and I'm – two South Dakota trips in the books and two more to go, and I'm looking forward to both of them. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I got a lot. I I, I cleaned pheasants. I was up – it, you know, five this morning cleaning pheasants. Jeez. Well, even if your next uh, trips don't work out to this one, you still have this trip. That's that's insane. How many is that total for like you? How many do you take home when it's? Well, we party hunt. Okay. So we share the birds equally. Uh, we ended up with five guys with forty-five pheasant roosters, and so we split them up. Every every guy got nine birds. Went home with nine birds. Wow. Some of us shot more of those. Some of us shot less of them. But the, the, our kind of philosophy with party hunting is if you're there, you get an equal share because, you know, um, every everybody's part of the group equally. Well, that's cool. Did did you do yourself particularly well or was it? I would say I'm one of the better shots uh, these days. Yeah. And it's right. just reps, man. It's yeah. just reps. I just I shoot a lot. I'm out there a lot. 
And I think with pheasant hunting, more than a lot of like duck hunting, deer hunting, stuff like that, you have a lot of time to think. When you're upland bird hunting, there's a lot of muscle memory involved. Sure. So the more times a bird flushes in front of you, you bring that gun to your shoulder and fire, the the less you think about it, the more it just kind of instinctively happens. So yeah, I've gotten pretty good, but but I but man, I miss some layups too. You know, <laughs> like every every weekend I go out there, I make shots, I miss shots that are easy and I make shots that are hard and it's a lot of guys out there compare it to golf, you know. Right. Well, you got that long walk, just like golf. <laughs> That's right. No carts. Yeah. No electric carts. Uh, and you're going to get to go out there, man. Uh, in just a couple weeks, we're going out pheasant hunting with you and no pressure, the co-hosts of the Flush television show. No, I'm nervous as uh, I'll be. <laughs> I, I got to be honest with you. I've been, uh, I've been trying to look up like ticks, tips and tricks and stuff like that online, but I, I'm nervous as all can be. So Maybe you should just <laughs> listen to their podcast. And <laughs> that's, that's too much work. I do it once already. I don't want to actually have to listen. To <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, that's going to be fun, and we'll talk about it on a future episode. I'm glad we're getting you out there for your second pheasant hunt. And, and with going with those two fellas... I have a feeling we might run into a few more birds than when you just went out with me. Well, I mean, it's not going to be hard to top that. So, yeah, <laughs> I'd expect the same, too. Yeah. <laughs> hey, man, speaking of epic, uh, epic hunting experiences, my guest this week is a dear friend of mine, Seth O'Donovan. And she and I have known each other for over 10 years. Uh, she's very close friends, not only with me, but with my spouse as well. Um, we went out to visit Seth and her partner, Tony, last winter. And the year before that, I went out actually with a camera crew from Minnesota Bound and Ron Share Productions, those kind of guys. And we filmed an elk hunt, as I talked about in the show. I've never really talked about this before, but I did shoot a TV pilot for a Reverend Hunter TV show that we have pitched for the last couple of years unsuccessfully. But nevertheless, it was a great, fun experience. Taught me a great deal about storytelling, vi visual storytelling, which was I didn't know much about. Um, and I, get to, I got to hike around in the mountains with Seth for a week, which was just an insane experience. She has taught me so much, uh, and we... Man, we cover a lot of topics in our conversation, everything from, you know, foraging um, and fermenting, which she does, to butchery, uh, the spiritual side of hunting, uh, what she loves about working in the hospitality industry, on and on. It's, it's a very rich conversation, and I think uh, people will really love it. So... Yeah, I I don't want to take any more time away from that. I really hope you like it. And if you do, like, share, subscribe, rate, review, send it to your friends. Let them know about the Reverend Hunter podcast and this special conversation. And here it is, my very special conversation with my dear friend from Dunton Hot Springs, Colorado, Seth O'Donovan. Hey, Seth, welcome, and thanks for coming. I've been wanting to do this in person for, like, what, two years? Yep, yep, and two years. Sounds right. We just couldn't get it together. We've seen each other. 
mm-hmm. in the last two years, a couple times, but we haven't done it with recording equipment. Well, we did it with a certain type of recording equipment, video recording equipment. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've never really talked publicly about the TV show pilot that I shot with you, which was just over two years ago now. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, because it was always a little, I don't know. It was a huge creative risk for me. It was like it was not like anything I'd ever done before, and so I didn't want to kind of jinx it by talking about it to people. And it also sounds so um, presumptuous to be like, "Oh, I shot a pilot of a television show." <laughs> <laughs> um. Because people are like, oh, really? But yeah, I'm like, yeah, no, nobody, no, we never got it made. I mean, we made the pilot, but we never like got it on a network or anything. But ever since then, I've wanted to have you on the podcast because there's a reason I, of all the places I could have gone to hunt and make a pilot for the, um, the dream of the Reverend Hunter uh, a television show, it was with you. And it's because I think, well, you're a fascinating person who does a lot of stuff, and I think you and I have a good rapport. But I guess we'll figure find that out in like the next forty five minutes. Yeah, <laughs> we have a great rapport. I know, I know, I know. We do. I know we do. <laughs> um, locate yourself for the listeners of this podcast. So I'm a, I live in Denton, Colorado. It's a old ghost town turned hot springs resort. It's in the way southwest corner of Colorado. Like we're closer to Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico than we are to really any other major city of Colorado. So culturally, sometimes um, there's not a lot of good reference points for people to where I am. In Colorado, um, unless you've been down here. I, you know, I'll say two things. One is the second smallest plane I've ever been on <laughs> mm-hmm. was a flight to, to you. Yep. And also when I drove from Minnesota to see you, it was like I got to Denver and I was about halfway there. Right. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Like I drove 12 and a half hours to get to Denver and I'm like, I slept the night and then drove another 12 hours the next day or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe 10. Yeah. We're on in the best of circumstances, eight and a half hours South and West of Denver. Mm. So right in the heart of the San Juan mountains. And, uh, I live and work here. There's a small community community of us up here who live here and also run the resort all together. And then along with that, kind of live a rural life, you know, like we run our own roads fire department and uh, we do backcountry things together. And we're about an hour from the closest gas station. So we do a lot of things to make sure community is good up here Mm -hmm. outside of the context of a town. And if you get a big snowfall, you're not going anywhere for a day or two, I'm guessing, except yeah. on snow machines. That's right. Yeah. Well, 
Exactly. I We get excited about big snowfall days because no one expects us to be anywhere up here and then we can actually go have fun and play. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't grow up rural, really. You grew up kind of bouncing around and, and in Europe. And, and when I met you for the first time, it was in the fall of 2009 when you uh-huh. spoke at a conference I organized. Damn, that is a long time ago. <laughs> Isn't it? Doesn't it seem like it a feels long time like ago? lifetimes ago? Yeah, it does seem. Yeah, it really does. But it wasn't. But it does seem no. that way to me. To me too. But um, you seem to me like an urban person. I mean, that mm-hmm. I'm just telling you that would have been my impression of you. Is you dressed very urban? You're just your whole vibe was very urban. I would not have thought. Oh, this is a like this is a backcountry woman of the woods. No. Yeah. I, I mean, I grew up in most of my childhood memories are in Berlin, Germany. Even Mm. then it was a city of 4 million, you know, that's like the population of all of Colorado. (laughs) So Berlin and then close to like Washington DC and Baltimore and that area of Maryland, Seattle, Denver lived in Philadelphia as an adult. Um, so I grew up in very, very urban contexts and love the cities, you know, like art museums and kind of, I guess, critical mass of creatives around and, um, there's a lot I love, but I, as I kind of ventured in my own journey of what was sustainable, both for myself and then what I most cared about the world, kind of understanding and getting to about how we eat and live, I just kept getting pushed more and more and more into rural contexts and Mm. fell in love with it. And now I'll go visit cities for like a great eating and art museum fix. I'm doing that next week. I'm heading over to San Francisco, but I'm good at about like, you know, 60 hours. That's like, that's what I need for the year. And other than that, I want to be back in the woods now. So I think it's been actually quite a change and shift in myself over the last, as you were saying, 2009, over the last decade or so. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many things I want to ask you about. Many of them we covered when we shot the TV show, but, um, if that, that's never going to see the light of day, most likely. So. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not totally dead. <laughs> no, no, but it's on life support. Mm-hmm, okay. <laughs> maybe some, maybe some great television producers listening to this podcast, like you know, I'll put that show on my network or something <laughs> like that. But short of that, there's a lot I want to talk to you about. Um, I want to talk to you about herbs. Okay. And tinctures and foraging because that's a big part of your life and you you know you you gave me a little tour when i was out there and um i tasted some vinegars that blew my mind you know so what was your journey into that well that started for me in a really urban context when i was in denver uh i was curious because of my own sort of like some paths around health and challenges around health. I was curious myself what 
maybe I was missing in my own health because of a lack of connection to plants that were available to me. And so I started to seek out like herbal classes and I particularly got connected with probably my main and most important to this day mentor on herbalism, Tanya. She owned an herb shop in Denver and started spending a ton of time there and eventually working at the shop and studying with her. And uh, that was probably one of the things actually that first sparked in an urban context for me for wishing and or having a desire to live in more rural contexts because mm. in the Denver shop, the way we get would get in all the herbs is just by ordering them, you know? So we'd order pounds and pounds of, all these herbs to run the apothecary and to make products and teas for ourselves and tinctures and health, other health um, oriented concoctions. And I always sort of wondered as I like opened these boxes we would receive of like 20 pounds of dried matter herbs, like where is this all coming from? Mm -hmm. And is it all farmed? Is it all monocropped? Is it, are we like totally destroying an ecosystem somewhere for this to be here? You know, like I knew how hard some of these things were to grow. So um, I think that started to raise some real questions for me about like where we were getting things that even just kept us alive, like good medicines, you know. Mm -hmm. But that's for sure where my practice started was in that context. And then along the way, when I realized I, my intention would be to eventually live rurally, I started learning everything I could. Yeah within a context of lessons and teachers and resources so that when I got out here, I could do the practice, you know, and what's one thing you've learned in the last year, um, that, or you learned about an herb or that came in handy that you didn't know a year ago. Mm. I, well, I've always loved the herb yarrow and like before I even knew anywhere that it grew. And then when I moved here, I found I was everywhere. Like it grows wild here. It's really thrives in super drought places like I live. And um, yarrow has been like the all-star herb of the last year and a half here because it has such strong antiviral properties. So mm that being an herb that can is a go-to for a community of people who don't have great healthcare access out here and who have been living through a viral pandemic has been amazing. So I've just like started to do everything with yarrow. It's like in everything. It's like honeys, it's vinegars, it's dried, it's tinctured, it's uh, all of it. So maybe it wasn't new to me this year, but like my, the diving into my practice of relationship with Yarrow has been for sure something that's been amazing this year. That's very cool. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. Butchery. Okay. Tell me about your journey into butchery. We're really moving along here in topics. Well, there's a lot of things I want to cover with you and I want listeners to get the whole picture. I mean, it's really, to me, it's, okay, I, I do a lot of things in a day. Like mm -hmm. I, I'm an eight, yeah. I'm an Enneagram eight, ambitious. I get up at 4.30 and hit the ground running, you know? Um, and you too, you're, you're a, 
you're even more. You you just do a lot, and you have a ton of varied interests. So I'm trying to kind of paint a picture of okay. your life a little bit in 45 or 50 minutes, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and we had such... I wish, you know, I have a regret. I do have a regret. Of course, I did not shoot an elk. And you and I talked a lot about on that hunt that that didn't make it, it that didn't mean it wasn't a success. I That's have right. worked really hard to people. Have you ever been elk hunting? Yeah. Were you successful? Yes. I didn't shoot <laughs> an elk, but I was still successful. Mm-hmm. I do wish we would have gotten a goat for you to butcher. Oh, yeah. The goats I love. What tell me about butchering a goat? Why what do you what do you mean you love butchering goats? Well, um goats are a really accessible animal. They're they're not at all valued in like meat world, like meat eating and nutrition world. Uh they have a really distinct flavor that lots of people don't like or they just haven't been taught to kind of love it. We don't cook well with goat because restaurants don't cook with goat. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it's a really amazing animal as far as what it eats and forages. It doesn't require like hundreds of acres of grassland. Um, its size also makes it really manageable and kind of appropriate for family size of feeding people. And as well as for butchering, you know, I'm not a very big person. And uh, so when I get into like butchering something like an elk or a cow, it's considerably outweighs me, you know, Mm -hmm. and the work on that is uh, takes everything Mm -hmm. of me. Whereas like butchering like lamb or sheep or goat, those animals I can do and also continue other things that day. Yeah. You know, so it's a little more uh, to me to scale and energy and uh, even household storage. You know, you can't butcher a cow and store it well in a family's freezer. Right. Unless you've really figured out some huge setup in your garage. and But a goat, you can store a whole goat in a family freezer. So I just like have started to think more about things like that and the reasons people don't butcher at home and what, what are, uh, what we've been taught is valuable meat and not. And, um, I mean, I also do love the relationship with goats. Like they're, I don't know, it's kind of a special connection with those guys. And so I enjoy them also as an animal and a member of the household, you know, until they die. How do you do? How do you deal with that emotionally? Having a goat as a member of a household or having a connection to that animal. When I, I, I mean, I've in the last two weeks, I shot a deer. My son shot a deer. We butchered them. They're in the freezer. I had no relationship with those deer, and it's still not easy. Not it's not mm-hmm. easy for me to kill the deer and to gut the deer and. Um, it gets easier as it's less deer-like and more dinner-like, you know, that transition. um, I do know. Yeah. It gets easier and easier. So how do you, you're a sensitive, emotional person. You're connected. What, what's that process like with a goat? Well, I've never raised from being a baby all the way to slaughter of a one animal. 
So most of the relationships I've had with goats were the goats on friends' farms that I spend a lot of time with and I'm around, but there's still a place where I still don't know the full impact. Um, and how you deal with it is you know what the relationship is from the beginning. And you invest and go through the life of that relationship with that animal, knowing that. And with that, I don't know how else to say it, except for maybe energetically, you've like contractually agreed to this. Hmm. So some of it is a defining of the relationship from the start, you know, and then the process of it is then to acknowledge when that happens and to prepare for it and, I have been really thankful to learn animal slaughter and butchering in the context of other family, friends, and farms that have also a sensitivity to the relationship with the animals. So I, it's been modeled for me and like what it looks like to sort of prepare for that in the family and to talk about it and to acknowledge it and set a date and then the care around the animal's actual culling is really specific. You know, there's one family in particular that I was part of quite a few of uh, killing their goats and processing them for the family's meat for the winter. And we sang to the goat and we spent time with it. And it had a ritual that it was put through that day. Um, so that it had a great last day. Can and you tell me a little bit about that ritual or tell us about that? Like it got us, it was pulled out from the rest of the herd early in the morning, like at dawn and spent a time by itself for the rest of the day in a pen by itself. But it was also taken to like the nicest little grass, grass and pasture place for its morning. Um, and the people in the household spent time and around him with the goat for the morning. And then the goat was given a grain meal right before it was uh, slaughtered, right before we stunned it. And then everyone stood around through its death and as the blood drained from it, and we sang and talked to it and supported it in sort of its passage from one zone to the other. Hmm. And then everyone had really specific jobs after that, that they went to and did regarding that, you know, okay. someone started to prepare uh, for butchering and someone else started the skinning and everyone had a job and knew exactly where they went to after that. So it was sort of also this midwife process for the humans. How do you mean by, what do, what do you mean by that? Like, like the humans that are affected, you can't also just go through that death portal with someone and then just stand around and stare at it. You know, like there's a place that we need to know our own place in the process. And our place in the process also isn't st to stand around and let meat rot and get into dangerous temperatures while we just like are sad. You know, we need to know our place and our places to make sure that none of that animal goes to waste, which means you have to move quickly after that death. Mm -hmm. And you have to 
dive into the work of it. You know, like your work has just begun actually for that day. What was your task that day? I'm often on skinning and uh, then move once the animal is skinned and eviscerated, then move into butchering. Okay. That's what I almost always do. And really all slaughters right now, it's kind of, kind of what I practice and enjoy about the process. And, and it's important it's done well. If you don't skin, you can skin in a way that is faster, but you can also skin in a way that I'm trying to get increasingly faster in a way that preserves the whole hide because I care about using the skin. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Now I um, am also learning the fiber arts aspects of using the fur and spinning that into usable wool. Okay. I am a terrible knitter. Like I'm a terrible textiles person, but I have a ton of people in my life who are great at it. And I feel like that's the kind of angle on the full animal usage that I've been missing is really learning how to use and um, turn into clothing that Pelton mm. fur. Mm. Uh. How how do you like to see goat prepared? Or how do you like to prepare stew. goat? I think goat's great as stew. Hmm. And that goes a really long way in the family, you know, for feeding. Uh, because of that distinct flavor, it's nice with a lot of other spices and broths and things like that. Okay. Goats also carry a good amount of fat in them. And so that stew allows you to actually ingest that fat in a palatable way, which is really important for us. Um. Uh, Tony, my partner, makes an excellent goat liver pate, mm. and I love I love that. <laughs> I need to talk to him because my neighbor gave me a bunch of cow liver that's in our Ooh. basement, and um, my sons are both really into weightlifting, and they really want to eat liver. They're like yep. I've read on these powerlifting websites, oh, and yeah. liver's like the best thing you can eat. So what? I did last week was it was I uh, sauteed cow liver and venison heart, an entire venison heart, sauteed the liver and the heart together with onions and garlic and stuff like that and served it over pasta. And he loved mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. You know, what was interesting is obviously the texture of liver can be off-putting for some people because it's, again, it's not that it's good or bad. It's just, we're not used to it. Yeah. You know, we're used to, we don't to, need organ meats anymore. No, we're used to biting into muscle meat. Yep. And it was interesting that the heart came. Okay, a lot of people have struggled with, um, heart texture. Mm -hmm. Uh, but compared to the liver, the heart is more meat-like, more totally. muscle. You know, it is a yep. muscle. So even though it's an organ, it, it had a firmer texture. And I found it to be a pretty good combo, actually. Yeah, that could work. I, I always throw the heart into the grind. Oh, do you? It just, okay. Yeah, it, it boosts and kind of adds a different level of flavor. And then everyone's getting heart in their hamburger. And Interesting, yeah. I love that. I just cleaned out our freezer this morning and it's kind of a mess, but I found two hearts, five lamb brains for tanning. <laughs> like all these organs were all over the freezer. I was like, all right, I've got, I got to do some projects here. <laughs> oh, funny. Um, 
Well, I want to ask you about being queer. Okay. Because it's something you and I have talked quite a bit about. And being you identifying as non-binary and queer, I'm not so interested in that for its own sake. But mm-hmm. how does that make you a better butcher, hunter, person mm-hmm. of the outdoors? Um, that's I've always found fascinating, your thoughts on that. Well, one of the ways I, I guess I don't know, because I haven't actually ever asked someone who identifies as binary or like really strictly as straight, what this experience is like for them. So I don't know if this is different, but I really love my queerness and perspective it gives me on the world in interactions with animals and plants uh, because it allows me a variety of access, like a very a varied access to the genders in animals and plants hmm. and the way those genders play out in our roles with them. So, you know, like even plant energies and their, and their spirits, I might be like way off woo woo right now for this conversation. No, but it's good. I love it when they, you go woo woo, by the way. Yeah. I you're like, it. okay. And we're just going to end the podcast right no, here. No, I love um, the woo woo. <laughs> edit. Go full uh, so <laughs> it's like, even the energies of the plants carry gender signatures around them. And that's not to say I'm like putting the plants in a box. I'm just saying they transmit sort of energies that help with different aspects of healing. Like there's some plants that do really fierce work and um, kind of like uh, unapologetic and like deep work in the body that most of those plants tend, I tend to relate to them as like a male, more male gendered aspects. And there's other plants that are for like the really soft sides of the human body, like internal organs or the uterus or maneuvering us through like grief or emotional spaces. And those I tend to interact with and interpret more around like a feminine energy. And I'm really like open to whatever that is and see like enormous value in all of them. You know, like even sometimes if someone's really sick and I'm helping them, I will get hits about which gendered sort of like move they, they need right them for support. Hmm. So it's all this like huge strength spectrum, but I think uh, because of the way I've been gifted in exploring those aspects within myself and being open to how they present in the world that gives me like a openness and connection to it as it might come through to me from a plant or as it might come through to me and a path for someone's healing or even the roles I take with like animals or, you know, I think you and I have talked about like the housewife thing. Yeah. That I did want to ask you why. Same, same conversation, you know, yeah, it's like, like you, when, when I visited you for the first time, I've been out there since with Courtney, but when I came alone, you had recently gotten a housewife tattoo, which is yeah. not what I would have thought <laughs> my queer friend, Seth, my no. queer, my queer <laughs> non-binary friend, Seth, would have a housewife <laughs> tattoo on her yep. forearm. Yeah. 
interestingly, of all the things I've tattooed on myself and uh, identities I've held, this one is bothering the most people. <laughs> it, yeah, I love it because I got the explanation. So, but it, it yeah. does show an insight into the way you're thinking about things. Mm -hmm. I well, really got into the concept of how. So, I, for, okay, through like Wendell Berry, a lot of Wendell Berry and all of his crews yeah. reading and books, you know, he talks a ton about actually like the gender roles and impacts on gendered roles of industrialization and the era that was brought in post sort of like a uh, centered agricultural world. And uh, so he got me thinking about it. And there's one essay of his in particular where he breaks down that, like the farmer's job was the relationship with the land and the animals. But once the, the land and the animal practice crossed the threshold of the house, everything else was the housewife's job. And so that means an animal was slaughtered, but then like all the butchering, all the curing, we're even talking pre-electric. So we're talking about getting a family through seven months of winter without a freezer of stored meat and without a refrigerator for preserves. So the canning, the preserving, the textiles, the keeping everyone warm. Uh, oh my gosh. I mean, candle making, soap making. We're talking about like the entire craft mm -hmm. of household things that takes raw animal and plant matter and makes it something useful to human nourishment and survival and healing. All of those skill sets were the housewife's job. And there was kind of this thing of like being known as a good housewife was this enormous place of honor and eldership in the community. You know, she could teach you anything you needed if your family started to starve in the middle of the winter, you know, and she could teach you how to like clothe the baby and all of these things. Um, I got into that and then realized that without knowing it, I had been pursuing being a good housewife for like the last decade and a half, you know, like that's actually what I was going for. <laughs> but what, but, yeah. but a lot of nine non-binary queer people, and just a lot of it, people in, in particularly in the white West, Mm -hmm. um, are pushing against those gender roles and find those gender roles, those traditional gender roles, oppressive? Well, I think they're oppressive when you make them equal someone's identity. Okay. You know, if someone's like born with female body parts, and so then we say because of that, you got to become a housewife. That's when to someone I think it feels oppressive. But... Uh, should Do we need housewives in the community regardless of what body parts you have or how you identify? Yeah, we do. So, And in fact, we're in a lot of trouble if electricity collapses on us right now because we don't have housewives, you know, in, in that sense. So, yeah. and we need farmers and that doesn't have anything to do with your body parts either. Like, so I think... And, you know, if you look into history that hasn't been written, there's actually, I think, some cool paths to go down and research about how people who weren't written about in history 
took on these roles outside of the prescribed gender roles, even of those eras of the early 1900s, you know. But I don't, I mean, well, Wendell Berry talks about this too. He's like, the whole like uh, title of housewife and a lot of women's value in the home did not come into question until electricity started taking jobs of what, and, and industrialization generally, electricity, factories, all of that, started taking these jobs that were women's. And um, then no one, people started to question like why she was needed, you know? So even that, I think, is an interesting thing to talk about in a feminist analysis of industrialization. And yeah. I might be making some people irritated right now. <laughs> no, our, 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 uh, you know, our mutual friend Phyllis Tickle used to get in a lot of trouble because she would say, uh, on the one hand, the birth control pill emancipated women. On the other hand it took away a ton of power that women had in mm -hmm. society of, con you know, um, boy, she would, the women in the audience would get so mad. Yeah. And I, you know, she was making a feminist argument. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think you're making a feminist argument too, but it could easily be misunderstood by people. Uh, I think Courtney, you know, if Courtney heard you talking like this, she would say, well, Tony's the housewife in our family. Like Tony's yeah. the one who butchers and pickles and cooks and cures. Yep. Um, and she would have no problem with that. Say, with right. saying that, you know, she wouldn't feel like I should be, I'm, I'm not fulfilling my role or I should be doing this uh, or that. Um, is some of the stuff you do driven by some existential fear that our society isn't sustainable, that maybe our infrastructure will could collapse and you want to have the skills to continue living in community with other people? 100%. Me too. 100%. I mean... I would say it comes from these little, these dual urges. One is actual fear. Mm -hmm. um, I'm reading the book, How Not to Be Afraid right now by <laughs> Gareth. I think, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Our friend Gareth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, it, but it's a good concept, you know, that like, it, we aren't saying fear shouldn't exist or that you should deny it, but there are ways to act afraid and there are ways to act not to act afraid yeah and so i think this is a positive direction i'm acting from a fear even you could call it a belief that we're going to hit capacity i mean there is only so much we can ask of this planet the way we currently run it mm -hmm. and it's going to check us and i believe that and i think it already is and so I am very concerned about the people I love most in my local community's ability to live in that hmm. shift and think it is on me to learn as much as I can to help us through that. Um, but it also comes from a side of joy because as I've moved into learning all of this, it has 
positively impacted my mental health, my emotional health, my physical health, uh, inspired me. I am much more interested in my world. I love it more. I'm willing to do more to save it. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the people around me more because there's ways I can actually like nourish and feed and heal them. So there's the other side where even if someone came up to me with like the newest science tomorrow and said, Seth, it turns out we actually can live like this driving cars forever and the planet will always support it. I would not stop anything I'm doing at this point because it is what makes, uh, life meaningful and joyful and something to me worth sharing with other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You and I are on the same page on that. Uh, in some ways I do it. I, I joke with people, you know, I, I'm like, you know, I, I've done a lot of study in the last five years on the end of the Roman empire, like a lot, read a ton about it. And it's just led me to a very strong conviction that no governmental structure lasts forever. Like yeah. they thought theirs was going to, but it didn't very famously didn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's the same with every version of human society and government. They all collapse eventually. And, you know, I say some stuff to people and I joke and I'm like, well, do you know how to like prepare a squirrel? You know, <laughs> and right. they laugh and they don't, of course they don't. Um, but probably it's not going to probably it's not going to collapse in my lifetime or your lifetime and uh i would yeah i still would keep doing what i'm doing i mean i'm i'm driving tomorrow west from here into a blizzard so i can pheasant hunt mhm uh yeah and it's probably kind of crazy to do it but the pheasant hunting will be great because mm-hmm. of the bad weather and it doesn't mm-hmm. scare me off. I, I love it. Um, I, I, you, you just touched on it there, but I, I want to dive a little bit deeper finally into spirituality because you, it's another thing you and I have talked a great deal about. I know your story. You grew up in a extremely conservative version of Christianity. Um, and you continue to be a very spiritual person. And I wonder currently where you're at, how, how this, how all these activities that you've told us about feed into your personal understanding of the divine, of your connection to the divine, of how other people might be able to connect to the divine. Yeah, I think the simplest way to say it, and you and I talked about this when we were hunting, um, but it just continues to evolve deeper layers to me, is that all of this work taps me more and more into connection. Mm. And understanding the many layers of connection that my own body and spirit shares with the rest of the world and the beings in it. And also growing and experiencing deeper connection by diving into all of these practices and ones that heal end up healing me even Mm -hmm. when 
that wasn't the original intent, you know. Uh, the, the practices and work of this continue to expose to me places of my own brokenness and also offer me paths through them. And so I think what all of this has to do with my spirituality is that it gives me um, paths to continue to peel it open, you know, like onion, like open up all the layers and mm. find more layers. And um, in those like processes of discovering brokenness and finding healing and connect, building connection with animals and plants and other humans and all of that, that's where all the themes to me emerge of our shared backgrounds of like redemption and grace and reconciliation and like all of those things just like come up. I mean, this is an enormous topic because uh, it all gets sort of like packed into that. But I think another part of that and that connection piece is through aspects of spirituality that I've woven in now with my own practices that I have discovered through herbalism, there's a very, very important sort of tenet of honoring and living by the cycles of things. And that birth doesn't happen without death and winter doesn't happen without summer. And that the cycles of things all have their place in our life. And those also happen for us like on an energetic and spiritual level. And a part of our work as humans is submitting to the cycles hmm. um, and not pretending life is about one part of the cycle without the other. And I mean, maybe that's another thing too, is this like theme of submission. If we want to get into other things that <laughs> might make people mad, but I think the more and more I get into all of these practices and work, the more there's this, aspect of humility and, and submission to me that has a very positive connotation and not like a shame-based or power over one, but one that is like, there are things out there bigger than you. And there are processes out there that we do not understand, but have to still live by. And um, resisting or denying them is not the path through them. And it's not the path that helps us find the joy, you know? And um, there's enormous freedom in sort of embracing that. I continue to find enormous freedom in the submission to all of that hmm. rather than the fighting that I think I've done a lot of my life. Well, that, yeah, I mean, I could say so much about that because, of course, it's such a core tenet of of the faith in which we were brought up. I've been teaching a class at a church on the gospel of Mark and Mark. I love. Um, and one of the things about Mark is Jesus is constantly making clear to the disciples that uh, he's not the kind of Messiah that they were expecting. They were expecting a strong man. Right, yep. they're expecting the second David to come back into Jerusalem and move into the temple and become the high yep. priest and kick out the Romans. And yep. 
he'll even he even asked Peter at one point in chapter eight, uh, who do people say that I am? Some say you're Elijah, you know, some say you're a prophet, some say you're John the Baptist reincarnated or whatever. Who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah. And then the very next thing that happens is Jesus, Jesus starts talking about death, sacrifice, being rejected by the priests and the scribes. And Peter rebukes him. Peter pulls him aside. It's like, no, no, you don't get, no, no, no. And Jesus lays into him and says, get behind me, Satan, which is this very you know famous line that Jesus says. And it's quite a curse on Peter. Um, but it's like, and there's this other passage right around there where they're walking down a road followed by a huge crowd of people. And there's a blind beggar named Bartimaeus by the side of the road. And he calls out to Jesus and the disciples are like, no, no, we don't have time for this. Let's keep moving. And Jesus stops and says, bring that guy to me. And of course then heals Bartimaeus. But the point being like, no, that's actually what I'm about. I'm actually mm-hmm. about the blind beggar by the side of the road who's calling out to me, son of God, have mercy on me, is what Bartimaeus right. calls out. And it's like Jesus' submission, they just didn't get it. They just didn't get it. Over and over, they didn't get it. Yeah. And I, okay, now I know this is one thing that I find fascinating about you uh, uh, along the lines of this conversation is, professionally, your specialty is hospitality, which most people would think is like, I would, I don't know that I would hate it. I just don't think I would be good at it (laughs) because you're dealing with people like you run a resort and your Mm -hmm. job is to make sure it's a, it's a, it's a subservient role that you're in. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, you have more agency than a, a slave or, or, or a indentured servant or something like that. But nevertheless, like there is a pecking order or a hierarchy at a resort and it, it, the clients, you know, the customers are at the top and they, uh, I'm guessing they get what they want most of the time. So I wonder how that has affected you or if that's part of why you're drawn into hospitality. Yeah, well, I got drawn into hospitality similar to the housewife theme and just that that's the sector that I could be practicing and diving into and learning most of these things I care about and be doing all those things, you know. So some of it is just this practical path. Um, I also believe that when it comes down to humans surviving – that the crafts of hospitality are at the core of um, like our human need, Mm. you know, like people need to eat. Now this is like a really, really hard thing to talk about in our current culture and a first world context because people don't need to eat. They probably need to eat less. So uh, we are out of touch with that because we don't know what hunger is anymore. We've totally, totally lost touch with the idea and feeling and like body of hunger. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, killing us literally. But when it comes down to it, hospitality is about providing the things for other people that 
they need the most to survive. You know, it's like they need a bowl of soup. It's, I mean, I mean, talk about biblical narratives that center around people like in their needing a meal, needing a bed, needing to be healed. Like the whole thing's about it, you know? All of the things, all of the stories took place in context of those three things. That's right. And so there is something to me about the, these arts and crafts of the home that also are right now really represented and reflected in the hospitality industry that um, are, to me, the, the base place of human meeting human. And also in that the place that people might find the most impactful moments of change or asking new questions about the world that we yeah. really need to ask. Yeah. So I love the hospitality industry for that reason. Do I love like the pornographic aspects of hospitality mm. industry? No, it's like real gross, you know. Do you, how do you, but, you must have to coach younger staff. I mean, you, you manage a big staff and there must be people who roll in and they just don't have that mindset of humility of like, you're going to be serving other people. That's your sure. whole deal. So how do you, how do you coach slash pastor? Because I remember when I was out there thinking like, you're kind of like a youth pastor at this resort <laughs> or like a camp director. I've been yeah. there. I like <laughs> you're dealing with people in their in like college age and in their twenties and yeah. you're coaching them on how to be camp counselors or whatever. Like, so I remember those conversations with college kids. Like it's not all about you. This is all yeah. about the campers, but how do right. you have those conversations with your staff? Well, it's a little both and because one is mostly most of the, those conversations actually just center around like, can you, can you displace yourself for a minute to think what this person needs most right now? Mm-hmm. You know, like, and often what that person needs most, although it's the thing being asked for, isn't a glass of wine. They need someone to be kind for them, to mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. or to like, listen to them tell this like super annoying story at the bar. But to that person, that's like what they have to do. Like they need someone to listen to this story right? Right. that they have, you know, or they need someone to be, to introduce them to something in a way that doesn't make them feel stupid, you know, like a way we cooked or prepared something or it's like they, they need connection and that gets expressed in all of these ways. And so in the end, I talk to our staff about how we learn our craft so that we are skilled enough to meet people in those places, but that that's actually the need. Hmm. And hmm. when we have those moments with people, it might end up shifting something for them. Yeah. You know, but there's this other aspect that's like, uh, be humble about the things that you get to be in connection with and know that other people because of the way our culture is structured right now, I've totally lost touch with, you mm-hmm. know, like uh, being able to be a craftsman these days and know things like literally how to prepare something so someone else can eat or how to make a beverage that someone else can drink or mm-hmm. how to preserve something. It's like, those are things to use and to know and to dive into so that you can serve people more, not so that you can, like lord it over them. Yeah. Yeah. 
I don't know. There's so many nuances to it. And it's just like every day, you know, I mean, there's the other aspect where I'm doing a lot of coaching with our staff right now about their own like dignity and actually how they don't have to be mistreated because Mm. they are in a blue collar job. Mm -hmm. I'm doing a lot of that right now. Wow. People are shitty, man. Like COVID has brought out the worst. Yeah. Yeah. And people come here and think that because they've paid something that they can treat our staff really badly. And, uh, we're doing a lot of coaching and work with our staff too, about like what it means to have a lot of pride in like blue collar and craft industries and then how to gracefully like draw boundaries and like invite people into that rather than being bullied by them. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> 50 topics a day to mentor a hospitality. Staff. Right. 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 Well, thanks for the time, my friend. I wish it were in person, but we'll get together mm-hmm. in person soon, I hope. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for the time. It's always lovely. I think um, I value the connection with you so much because you are also a person who carries multiple intersections of things and weaves them into one story in your mm-hmm. life. And that is... Um, refreshing and enlivening encouraging for me to keep going thanks yeah it's yeah there's a lot and i just doors open i walk through them and yep see what happens you know Mm -hmm. yeah well thank you thank you 